Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. Financial executives have been at the center of fighting financial and accounting fraud for decades, adapting as both players and schemes have changed with circumstances. But the COVID-19 pandemic unleashed a combination of forces that will take combating fraud to a new level. In this episode of the podcast, we revisit FEI's latest forward-thinking discussion regarding fraud and the pandemic's impact with FEI's own Shivani Sumaya, joined by Margot Cella of the Center for Audit Quality and Pam Varick of Protivity. Thank you to our panelists today, Margot and Pam. And I always think it's really important to kind of get to know our panelists before we kick off any sort of discussion. So my first question to the both of you is if you could please tell us a little bit about your background and how you found yourselves into the role that you're in today. Hi, Shivani. Thank you so much for today and the opportunity to speak with FEI's executives. It's really exciting to be here. Um, I actually got jazzed by the whole concept of fraud and ethics when I was a student at American University. I know that sounds kind of geeky, but I actually am one of the few people that I know that ended up in a career when they went to school for. Um, I had some really um, great inspirations along the way. Um, spent a little over 10 years at the big four. Um, at the time was the big eight and then came to productivity. I've been here 16 years. And and I really think it's, it's a matter of stepping stones. Um, the whole concept of fraud ethics has really evolved um, as we first, you know, kind of were introduced to chapter 8B2, the federal sentencing guidelines, and things have, have taken off from there. We've had Sarbanes-Oxley, we've had Graham-Leach-Bliley, we've had the Patriot Act, and uh, you think of all of the other regulations in between, um, but perhaps um, nothing more so than we think about our industry guidelines and, and the exciting things that have come out, out of COSO and all the great information coming out of the Center for Audit uh, Quality. And right now I'll pass off to Margot and she can share a little bit about her background. Thanks, Pam. Um, I also want to thank FEI for this opportunity. I think we're going to have a great conversation today and I hope that you all think the same, uh, feel the same way. Um, unlike Pam, I am not doing what I went to school for, but I did spend the first half of my career doing public policy research, primarily for the healthcare industry. But I joined the CAQ in its inaugural year, which was back in 2007. I was brought on to focus on our academic research agenda um, and then uh, sort of took over this role as uh, part of our anti-fraud effort. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the Center for Audit Quality, we're an autonomous, nonpartisan, nonprofit public policy advocacy organization. We guide and support the public company auditing profession. Um, and our sort of goal is to foster high quality performance by the auditors, as well as to convene and collaborate with other stakeholders to advance discussions that are critical to um, the profession and to the capital markets. In 2010, the CAQ launched what we call the Anti-Fraud Collaboration with some great partners, FEI being one, the Institute for Internal Auditors being the third, as well as the National Association of Corporate Directors. So together, we believe that we sort of have the financial reporting supply chain 
And knowing that fraud is a shared responsibility, we, we believe that if we work together, we can enhance the effectiveness of financial fraud risk management, promote anti-fraud policies, procedures, controls, etc. Um, and the AFC, as we call it, that goal, our goal is to develop resources that will provide insights, recommendations on how companies, boards, and external auditors can more efficiently and effectively focus on fraud deterrence, detection, risk management. Um, several of our resources are relevant for the discussion today, so I'm, I'm hoping that you'll look them up if, if the links aren't there. Um, look them up later on our website, antifraudcollaboration.org. Back to you, Shivani. Thank you so much. So as a young woman who's kind of just embarked on her own career, it's really refreshing to kind of speak to both of you who have had conventional and unconventional paths into the roles that you're in. So I just want to say that I, I personally really appreciate your own career insights and want to thank you as well for your input. But um, I'll kick off the conversation. I have a question that's directed at Pam. And Pam, you mentioned that you've been working in fraud risk management for, for some time now. So I'm interested to know from your perspective, how has the pandemic changed the way in which you think about fraud issues from corporate perspectives? Thanks so much. Well, I'm coming to you from Alexandria, Virginia, in the comfort of my home. And I think that um, that term comfort uh, is really uh, one of the things that stands out. I think for all of us who have had to pivot, um, whether we were consultants on the road or we were used to sitting behind our desks almost 24-7, the concept of integrity and the concept of skepticism have really changed because we're really in the in a place in our safety zone, and I find that um, fraud has been more of an amorphous activity. Meaning, um, sometimes it's a distraction. Sometimes the, the I call it the dog bell. You know, Amazon rings the bell, the dogs barking, kids are at it, and and perhaps it's it's um, just not looking closely enough, or perhaps um, we've seen where organizations um, have not necessarily thought through their, their end user security on their networks, um, perhaps integrity of um, financial reporting, uh, non-financial reporting, integrity of numbers, um, integrity of people, people-related behaviors has not necessarily been the same since we've all been in our home environment. So for me, that whole concept of integrity, um, that concept of skepticism, and that concept of comfort, um, whether it's in our networks, whether it's in our people, whether it's in our, um, our systems has really uh, been a striking a chord for me, particularly since, uh, as I see in my practice, you know, we are seeing an uptick in ransomware. We are seeing an uptick in, in cyber-related fraud issues that result in or a conduit or channel for intellectual property missing, uh, uh, business email compromise that results in millions of dollars being wired out of an organization, um, systems being compromised and, and people sitting in and uh, looking at files, folders, networks, uh, people even if you have your, your camera on, um, that whole concept of what we look at and how we think about fraud from a financial perspective and from a um, uh, numbers disclosures issue has really changed for me over the, the past, gosh, almost two years now. 
Yeah, and Pam, um, I think a resource that we published back in April of 2020 might be of interest to our audience that gets at some of these. It's Managing Fraud Risk, Culture, and Skepticism During COVID-19 and highlights the importance of crisis planning and fraud risk management that uh, many of the things that you talk about. Thanks for that. It, and Margo, I, I've pointed a lot of our clients to that because I think one of the things that really highlighted for me in that white paper is the whole concept of yellow flags. And, and I know we had a, a chance to, to back and forth a little bit on this, but for me, yellow flags really go to those um, psychological factors or those um, psychosocial factors that come into play when we talk about employees and ethics. And then the red flag concept of what we're seeing is, as hard indicators and in numbers um, in our transactions, payments, um, that sort of, of system generated activity. And for me, it's really hand in hand when we talk about fraud issues. Uh, and again, if, if people are looking for a really great resource on some of the things that they need to consider, particularly as we continue to be in a hybrid model or for others who are seeing an uptick in COVID related activity and, and are, are dialing back to where maybe they were at the onset of the pandemic, you know, that white paper really speaks volumes to the things that I think are really great to keep at the forefront of your mind as you're undertaking a fraud risk assessment. Thank you. That was that was really great insight. And I think the one thing that I picked up from Pam, your first initial input to, to the question was the notion of integrity. Um, as somebody who kind of comes into this field with limited knowledge of fraud risk management, I think it's really insightful to learn about integrity and how that kind of relates to fraud risk management. So I wanted to say thank you for that. And now, Margo, I'll turn it over to you for a second to ask, you know, are auditors adapting their fraud risk assessment processes? to address the unique set of challenges that the pandemic brought about? Are you seeing any changes there whatsoever? Uh, the way I would put it is I don't know that the fraud risk processes have changed, but definitely some of the factors that are under consideration did change. Um, <clears throat> auditors take a risk-based approach when they identify risks of material misstatement for the upcoming audit, whether that misstatement is fraud or error. But, you know, they're also alert to the company's elevated risks during the pandemic. Um, and as we slowly, hopefully, normally uh, make our way back to a, a normal state. But when, when they do a fraud risk assessment, um, you know, they sort of consider some of the um, issues in the processes. They'll do a brainstorming session. But even once they start the audit, it's iterative. So it's not a, a one and done. It's not like, oh, it's December, let's figure out what the fraud risk is for this client that's a 1231, and then once they start the audit, they just you know, forget about it. Um, and I would say, particularly given uh, the audits of 2020, there were some areas that probably presented certain challenges for the audits of the financial statements, you know, asset valuations and impairment triggers, those kinds of things. Um, so I'm kind of hard to figure out what the uh, valuation should be because it's like a moving target. Accounting estimates, even fair value measurements would be it would be a challenge. Um, revenue recognition. Um, always an issue, particularly as companies were experiencing a decrease in revenue, or in some cases, like an Amazon, an increase in revenue. Um, and then there's issues about leases and debt covenants. So, you know, those are the kind of areas that an auditor would focus on as they're 
doing their risk assessment and then also as they're doing their procedures to see what changes were, were there. Um, and, you know, I think every time they gather the information, you know, they'll, they'll huddle and they'll talk about what the impact of that information might be on, on fraud risk. So if they find things that contradict what they thought they would see, um, you know, from their original risk assessment, they'll, they'll revise, modify their, their plan procedures. So given the unique circumstances brought on by COVID um, and having to conduct Here's another issue, having to conduct their audits remotely, um, gathering evidence remotely, um, provided some or presented some challenges for the, for the auditor. But, um, you know, I think uh, audits did, a, did pretty well. I mean, uh, fortunately for uh, the profession, most by the time we all went into lockdown, most of the 1231 fiscal year end audits were completed and were getting filed. So we had a few months before the big tranche of 630 uh, fiscal year ends came up to deal with some of the issues like how are you going to do uh, an inventory observation? How are you going to review uh, documentations and, and walkthroughs and that sort of thing? So I think, as I say, um, Probably not much changed in terms of the process, but in terms of the things that they considered, uh, lots of changes. Thank you. So I, I also just want to take a second here to pause and remind all the attendees that we have here today that, you know, this is an interactive conversation. So the conversation is also very much fed off of the questions that are submitted from you all. So I just wanted to remind the attendees, you know, if there's a question that comes to mind pertinent on the topic that we're on, please use the Q&A box to submit your questions and we'll take them as and when it fits. But on that note, there is a question from the attendee that's coming in that I think um, Margot would be posed to you. And the question reads, what are the best ways to detect and also ways to prevent kickbacks or fraud committed by vendors that collude with employees? Hopefully the um, company has some good internal controls around this and uh, some ways to sort of track those kind of things. I actually would defer to Pam as a forensic specialist to maybe um, give some insight into, into how a company could, could do that. Sure. Thanks, Margo. Uh, you know, bribery and corruption is, is, is something I, I live in that field every day. So I, I get to see the, the ugly belly of the beast. And I think that there's a couple things to be aware of. Um, one, I go back to conflicts of interest and disclosures. So one of the things that we think about controls is what is your conflicts of interest policy? What controls do you have in place? Where are your known conflicts? So that's that's sort of step one. You know, have conflicts been made aware? Um, have they been um, disclosed to if it's legal or compliance? Have that has that information been passed over to procurement? Do um, does the accounting and finance team have that information? Information to understand where if there is a, a known conflict that there's uh, dual control and who's supposed to be signing off on invoices and what that looks like. The other thing I go back to is, you know, I, I love analytics. So I'm interested in seeing is there recognizing that a lot of people brought on new vendors or that vendor activity may have been paused. I want to see what your trends look like. So if I've got all of a sudden I've got a vendor and they're off the charts in terms of either frequency of invoicing or the amount of invoicing seems out of 
character or out of cadence for what it is you normally would have, I would want to see that. Um, my other thing is that if you're seeing a lot of Amazon or you're seeing a lot of eBay as a vendor, you're going to want to know more about that. Um, that's been a real big issue for a lot of organizations, um, just not having necessarily this, the seamless transparency into those types of, of purchases. Um, also thinking through in terms of our vendors, are there vendors that are coming in as a one-off? So perhaps it's um, they're being paid through, um, you know, we, we've seen, uh, you name the mobile payment system, but um, you know, are there vendors who are being paid sort of outside of the system or for whom we don't have a contract, um, that there's been some sort of, of override or one-off? Those are the things that I wanna see. I also wanna understand from a vendor perspective, where are we making those payments? Has there been, or have there been changes in either the vendor master file, um, the vendor address, uh, vendor bank account lately that would, are we looking at that? Or are teams considering those activities as part of monitoring? And the reason I say that is not necessarily always a kickback, but those that type of monitoring is also very helpful in understanding perhaps where there's been um, a business email compromise scheme um, and a, an account takeover um, where a, a, a fraudster's taken over a vendor's identity. So when we think about kickbacks, those are very, very important types of activities to be thinking about those types of fraud schemes. But I also want to be thinking about in terms of vendor fraud, um, the wider idea of um, inflated invoices. I want to be thinking about um, shell companies. I want to be thinking more about um, in terms of, of what other activities that, you know, is the vendor really qualified to be providing the goods and services? One of the things that we know that organizations have struggled with is in its supply chain, getting the, the credible um, goods and services that they have actually paid for. We've seen substitution in inferior materials. We've seen um, substitution of materials that um, perhaps are, are not exactly um, in line with um, a vendor's um, primary primary type of service that they would, or good that they would um, be able to furnish. And so they've gone and gotten it through a subcontractor or a sub sub-organization and again the quality or uh, what it is that you've spec'd out and need is not exactly what it is you're getting. So when we think about, about kickbacks particularly, I go back to conflicts of interest, having those discussions, the amount that's being paid um, on an invoice. I look for other, um, I look around the relationship. So if um, there are other things that have been happening in terms of gifts, meals, entertainment, um, that I, I ask about in terms of, of audits and audit activities, or perhaps you've got a gift log that you're monitoring, um, or perhaps you're having conversations and inquiry with managers. You know, we've seen a lot of, um, gifts around or rewards around um, uh, procurement teams and, and uh, sales teams and, and uh, not just giving, but the receipt of um, activities, and I say activities, um, online activities. So perhaps you've had children and they needed a tutor and all of a sudden somebody's come in and said, hey, look, our, our vendor who does X is sponsoring or you know, sending us um, online tutoring credits for you name the platform that, that's providing uh, online 
tutoring or perhaps it's, hey, I got a super cool gift from you name your favorite Grubhub, take, you know, takeout, Drizzly, um, all sorts of online um, gift certificates and events and things like that, that um, normally uh, we'd be more on the lookout for from a gifts, meals, entertainment policy perspective, but now have that sort of quid pro quo um, consideration in the online environment. So those are some of the things that I'd be on the lookout for. Pam, that was great. And um, I kind of want to switch gears or kind of transition into a couple COVID-related questions. And it lines up really well with some of the questions that we've gotten with the attendees. And you kind of touched upon this in uh, my first question to you. But can you talk a little bit more about the trends that you have noticed with COVID-related fraud? So in your first question, an example that I remember that comes to mind is you talked about the uptick in ransomware attacks and cyber-related fraud crimes. Um, so are you able to talk about kind of the trends that you're seeing um, with COVID-related fraud and, you know, what stayed the same during the pandemic, what changed, um, what's new and what's different? Sure. Uh, oh, go ahead, Pam. No, go ahead, Margo. You, you start and I'll jump back in. Okay. I was going to say, you know, no matter what the environment is, it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, if you look over years and years of SEC enforcement actions on frauds, you'll find that the same types of frauds keep recurring over and over again. So back in January, we published, uh, the collaboration published a report on five and a half years of SEC enforcement actions that we analyzed and to identify some common fraud schemes. Um, and. No, I don't think anybody will be surprised, but number one was revenue recognition, either misreporting the timing or the valuation of the revenue. Sometimes there's fictitious revenue or for contracting companies, it's sort of the percent of completion. They might be sort of cheating on that a little bit. Um, another area that's um, pretty common over the five and a half years that we looked at, reserves manipulation, either making it look like there are adequate reserves for your liabilities or timing of the uh, manipul the reserves, sorry. Um, and then inventory, uh, we can misstate the cost of sales or overstate how much inventory you have. And then, you know, lastly, the next most in common fraud scheme was impairment issues. And mo this is mostly timing things, failure to record an impairment or, or a faulty valuation. Um, you know, and I would say, you know, some of the areas that are most vulnerable are like fabrication of revenue to offset any losses or manipulation of accounts receivables or debt covenants, you know, not having enough um, in your uh, revenue to cover some of the debt covenants in your in your loans. Um, but I'll tell you what stayed the same, and I'm sure that, that Pam will get into this, but may have been intensified during COVID are some of the things that employees are dealing with, like pressure, opportunity, rationalization. And if that sounds like the fraud triangle, that's, that's exactly what it is. Um, what we found in our analysis, which was obviously pre-COVID, was that pressure, opportunity were like the factors that contributed most frequently to fraud and were highlighted in the SEC enforcement releases. So when there's a downturn in the economy, like some industries may have had over the last year, and that can create external stressors and pressures for employees. So I think companies need to keep reevaluating how these might um, later 
uh, impact their risk profile. So Pam, I'll turn to you, what you're seeing. Thanks for that. You know, I, um, I think uh, as a as a student of history, I, it's been important. You know, you, you think about cycles of, of uh, and patterns of, of fraud. Um, I went back as a CFE, so I'm both a certified fraud examiner um, as well as a CCEP. So I look at compliance and ethics, and I look at fraud, different lenses, and, and the fraud triangle, and again, we talk about integrity and how we think about integrity through the fraud triangle. Um, I, I went back and, and looked at, you know, the different reports to the nations um, that have been put out on occupational fraud and abuse, and I um, I, I teamed that with, with the documents you all have been putting out in terms of of um, types of fraud schemes that have come out. And I, I think what was interesting to me personally and what I'm seeing in practice is the following. One, if you look at every, um, uh, you look at how uh, financial statement fraud has, has happened, um, when there has been a lot of, of um, eyes on the books and records. When we think about, you know, last year, so 2020, there was a lot of consideration around where is our money going? Where are we tightening the belts? Where were we reining in? And so it's usually in that two-year cycle of of tightening the the incentives, the pressures, um, thinking through the attitudes and rationalization, where have we lost people, where have we gained, you know, where have we gained new new vendors, and how that risk profile changes, not just from a, a scheme standpoint, but from the velocity of risk. I know we're going back to the good old COSO word in, in velocity there and, and risk management. But what's important to me is that we're really changing how um, quickly these things um, are evolving, how, how um, we're seeing fraud schemes change, like ransomware um, mitigate, uh, are really um, moving up the chain to ransomware as service. So um, we see perpetrators, hackers are, are actually uh, monetizing their, their ransom um, activities and, and selling it as a service to other hackers. Um, we're seeing ex- uh, ransomware switch to extortionware and that that ongoing um, drip or leak of information or thread of information. And so it goes back to, you know, how, how things are looking from a cyber perspective. It goes back to um, 2009 when we had our, our last big economic recession and, and thinking about what was the greatest risk to an organization. And scarily enough, and maybe sadly enough, that was really employees. If you go back and you look at, at some of the industry um, papers from back then. And so the, you add in the concept of intention. Whenever we have fraud, we have intention. You add in the concept of, of integrity. Um, you add in the, the recipes of attitudes and rationalization. And I think what we come out with is um, we are at a heightened um place and time for employee related fraud. And that might be, you know, it might not be the bet the farm um, big financial misstatement, but it's going to be the um, death by a thousand paper cuts that bleed out over, hey, look, we, we've had, um, we haven't necessarily thought, uh, had a lot of employee expense reimbursements, and maybe we took our eye off the ball there and didn't realize what was coming through. Um, we've had new third parties, and as we talked about that, whole concept of, of vendor risk and, and fraudulent documentation. And perhaps people weren't necessarily thinking through some of the changes that we would see in account information or banking information or wire information and not having our eye on the ball in terms of monitoring. Um, I have seen where in some of our investigations that we're, we're really um, 
our, our accounting professionals, our treasury professionals, were actually corresponding with a hacker with a perpetrator and not necessarily, you know, the vendor or the customer that they that they thought they were. And so the information that they were getting had been um, taken over through an email compromise. And you have to think through and put a human element to this. So, you know, I, I think about Margot, that whole concept of, you know, you go back to basics, you know, are people having verbal confirmations? Are you requesting multiple types of supporting documentation? Are people looking closely at the supporting documentation, especially if you've got an automated workflow and it's really just a click of the button? You know, are people pulling up the documents that are actually in that workflow and reading them carefully, taking those couple extra minutes to validate that you know it's the right logo, it's got the right date, um, the date and what I looked at in terms of the last. Um, invoice, you know, from a uh, numbers perspective, you know, if the in, you've looking and hopefully you've got the, the numbers on the invoices, you know, that those aren't necessarily just 101, 102, 103 based on the date timeline, um, that if um, there are specific stamps, different countries have different stamp requirements or if we're thinking about China and chops, that that we know that we're looking and taking a closer look at, at the validity of supporting documents that are coming through, that we're pausing and, and having that that time spent, and that we're also thinking through um, some of the newer types of, of fraud issues that we're seeing. So again, we talked about um, fraud scenarios, new twists. Um, I, I think we also have to now think through as um, we consider um, fraudulent documents or fake documents, um, vaccine cards and, and uh, COVID test results that are now going to come into play as organizations are requiring these for employees to come in. Um, we're thinking about about um, workers' comp cases that maybe we haven't considered previously and, and the validity of those cases in the COVID environment. Um, we're thinking about the, the whole concept of time fraud. Um, are, are people on the computer, are they doing what they're supposed to be doing when they're supposed to be doing it? Have we gone into a flexible work arrangement schedule and we're, we're keeping closer tabs on, on um, when people are working or how they're working or what they're doing. Um, we also think through in terms of um, when parts of the organization have been up or down, open and closed, furloughed, what did that look like? Not just in terms of um, when, when production or, or when people were supposed to be on camera or off camera or doing their time checks, but thinking through, did work get done? Where did we end up in terms of the quality of work that our teams were supposed to produce? Um, what about the consultants and the contractors and where did that all fall in, um, in terms of, of what it is we talk about in, in terms of goods and services? So when I think about fraud schemes, and, and the new twist on sort of the, the old old types of, of, um, of risks that we may see, it's putting them in the context of our work environment, um, particularly around people when there were furloughs. You know, did we, did we open up um, and leave people's systems access on? Um, if there were somebody with, with malintent and, and had an ax to grind, could they have gone into the system when they weren't supposed to be working and, and done something? We think about that, that whole concept of, of employee fraud. We think about, um, are people actually getting the benefits that, that they're asking for reimbursements for? Um, we think about segregation of duties, uh, 
particularly if we think about the whole concept of of people being um, teams being um, you know shrunk or or perhaps um, during layoffs and furloughs you know did segregation of duties suffer and how did that change um, if we were supposed to have certain people covering for others do we really have that that true segregation of duties that we rely on. And not just when I think about um, segregation of duties from a um, how good is that how good is our our um, you know part A and part B, but in terms of we talked early on today skepticism you know we're now coming into the concept of fatigue and so when I think about people related behaviors and integrity you know there's always when there's fraud there's always an integrity risk when there's integrity risk there's not always fraud but it still comes back to people related behaviors so um, are we are do we have the right ethical mindset do we have the right attention level do we have are, are people energized or from fatigue are we getting into that more um area of of errors and omissions and not necessarily thinking that through from an intentional perspective so i know i just threw a lot of that at people but there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack there yeah no and i think pam to add to that i mean you, you brought back the integrity thing but um you know i think we find that companies that do have sort of an ethical culture and, and drill that home are more resistant to misconduct and, and how important that tone at the top can be because that permeates down through the organization. So it's one thing if I have integrity, but if I see that, you know, those up the chain don't, then, you know, that makes me more likely, particularly if I'm feeling pressure or I'm having other situations. Now I'm working from home. I have, my kids are learning remotely my husband is out of work, uh, you know, all these kinds of things that add to, I won't call them disgruntled employees, but could make somebody a little bit disgruntled um, are risks that companies have to consider. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that's bitten us all is, is the technology component. So I, I know um, I, 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 we, I can't tell you how many power cords I've been through and how many com how many computer issues I've had. And, you know, if somebody's there's an update and, and you know, we have to get something out. So put that in the context of your employee and, and perhaps you yourselves, you know, you're sitting there and you're, you're having, um, you know, you pick your day, but there always seems to be an update that comes out at the wrong time. And, you know, you've got to press a button and, you know, uh, payments got to get approved or, or something's got to get out. And so you put these technology factors, that, that whole level of technology risk as an added layer, um, whether it's foundational or whether it's the cream on top, that you think through, okay, how, how based on the technology that we've got, have we introduced greater amount of risk? Has that actually improved our control? Um, and, and we now have, uh, you know, additional layers of security. So we feel a little bit better about people working in the remote environment. Um, who, who is around that person? Have they gone, you know, if they couldn't get into an office because we haven't opened our offices, you know, are they, are they in some sort of, of communal hotspot that maybe our networks are perhaps more um, more open to to being compromised, um, or are there a lot of people around and we hear people talking on the phone and, and you, you just don't realize it, that they're giving out sensitive information. Um, the whole concept, I think, also of social media risk, and we haven't necessarily really grabbed onto that yet in our discussion, but you know the information that's been flowing out through different platforms um, because either you know we've had um, you know we think about the information and you know 
given the giving give somebody an app or give somebody a, an opportunity on a website you think about information that goes out through um, various um, information sharing platforms that employees like to hang out in and the different chat rooms you know, we also find that um, again I go back to intellectual property I go back to confidential data I go back to um, PII sometimes if we haven't necessarily taken that time particularly in the COVID environment to reinforce our policies around um, how we categorize our data, data classification, what information we can talk about, what we can share, what we should be sharing online, whether it's you know external to the company or even in our own little chat rooms internally. Um, all of that comes into play now. And so um, thinking through that, that technology factor and placing that, that sort of as a, a layer over the, the fraud triangle, I think is another important thing to consider as we talk about fraud risk and as we talk about integrity risk and we, we think through what's changed in the environment. I think you guys both touched upon some really interesting topics and what I, I loved about the discussion is how you kind of fed into some of the next questions that I had lined up and it also feeds really well into some of the questions that have come in from the attendees which you know I don't think we have to go into too much detail because you did cover some of these topics. But the question that's come in talks about, you know, with working from home, how has or has it at all the um, isolation of employees working remotely increased the potency of the fraud triangle factors? And you all touched upon this a lot, talking about, you know, sharing sensitive information and working from communal spaces. But what has been you know, besides the employee aspect, what has been the most challenging aspect of navigating the change? Um, well, I'll start. I think, you know, for auditors uh, that working from home, um, when for anybody who's been a public company auditor, you know, sort of like typically you're in a, in a conference room together, the whole team is working together. You're either um, having conversations, a lot of times just through uh, instant messaging or chat. So even though you're all in the same room, but you know the the partner will come by and talk about uh, a conversation that they had with the CAO or the CFO, or will ask questions about where things are. That element of conducting audits was was missing. Many teams tried to recreate it by you know getting everybody up on Teams at the same time or Zoom to replicate sort of being in the in the room, but um, you know, I think for those auditors who were very uh, introspective, maybe they didn't reach out to ask questions. Um, and so I think there was a little bit of uh, on-the-job training that may have been lost. But you know, most of the firms found ways to work around it. Not an ideal situation. I think everybody's dying to get back into that audit room and and making those those connections. And I think I mentioned earlier things like fraud inquiries, walkthroughs, management review controls. Those kinds of things were a little tougher in the remote environment. Um, and so, you know, we found ways to execute against those, but again, a little more difficult. Margo, and, and I'm going to add to that and maybe a different twist. I, I think that um, from an employee standpoint, some of the, the fraud risk we've seen result from um, that whole concept of isolation you know, really heightens and magnifies the attitudes and rationalization and, and whether or not employees feel 
cared about, have that connection with the organization and feel that that level of of, um, of trust and um, connectivity. But also I have found that um, sometimes isolation has driven employees into the online world a little bit more than perhaps we were hoping for them to be on their work computers. And that that has um, given rise to them being on websites that perhaps they shouldn't have from a, either a security perspective. Um, perhaps we've, we've seen too much time spent on um, other types of, of um, I, I call them that, you know, the, the Sin City websites, um, online betting, et cetera. Um, perhaps that's that's driven them into perhaps um pay-for-play um, uh, exchanges online that they're using the procurement card for. Um, perhaps that's driven them into um, chat rooms where um, they're actually, they're getting profiled and that's how um, they're getting targeted for additional um, cyber fraud or, or cyber stalking activities. And so I think that, that that whole concept of isolation has really magnified in ways that perhaps we hadn't necessarily thought through or expected at the onset of the pandemic, but are all cases that we've had to learn from and and walk through together and and really kind of reconsider our, our touch points with employees, employee awareness activities, making people just as we think about, you know, giving people security training for being on site and being prepared for for fire drills, we have to make them prepared for online issues. And and more importantly, we have to be able to combat that that fatigue and that that repetition. Sometimes you just lose your edge in terms of your skepticism or instead of just reaching out to somebody, you'd walk down the hall and say, hey, I have a question. What do you think about X? We've got to get people you know, back to that whole concept, as you said, reaching out, asking questions, raising their hand, interacting, um, and not just, hey, type an email. It's you know, the phone phones still work and, and people, you know, you can still have a conversation and making sure people understand that 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 level of interaction is really important, especially as it comes to, you know, the integrity of documents, the integrity of, of information they're getting over the either the Internet, their email, um, what they're seeing online um, and, and what they're hearing about and who they're hearing it from. Thank you. So I kind of uh, want to switch gears here a little bit. And I think some of what you talked about with the challenges on the employee side, um, you know, kind of ties into the question that I want to ask you next, which is what are the fraud risk challenges that small and mid-sized companies are facing as compared to larger public companies? And then this also feeds into the next question, which is, is there a difference between public and private and in the trends that you're seeing there? Sure. Sorry, coming off mute. Um, I, I find that for small and mid-sized organizations, you know, the harder part of, of fraud in the pandemic has been um, what their res- what, what how their resources are able to handle um, either uh, uh, up 
an uptick in invoices or perhaps um, we've had small teams and they've been impacted by having to uh, care for loved ones who have been um, sick or perhaps they themselves have been sick or they're having to deal with um, their kids being schooled at home. And so, you know, schedules have changed and um, the cadence, the workflow, the timing of activity that happens has been off. Um, so that I've also seen where they have been perhaps more impacted um, by furloughs. They've been more impacted by supply chain issues. Um, they've been more impacted by um, um, the, the concept of, of environmental issues. So when I say environmental issues, it's you know um, their their business environment. So perhaps their business partners that they rely on to execute certain types of transactions have had their own problems. You know when you think about smaller or mid-sized companies, they're very likely to outsource or co-source work. And so from that perspective, I found that um, who they're able to rely on, um, when they've been able, uh, when, when and how they've been able to pick up for um, fluctuations in their their teams, fluctuations in transactions, fluctuations in um, uh, certain control activity being performed has really had an impact on how well they've been able to uh, pivot. And, and when they've pivoted, whether or not uh, the controls have been um, impacted and whether that's caused a gap or a weakness that, that has enabled fraud to happen. Yeah, and I would uh, jump on that also by saying, you know, some of these smaller and mid-sized companies don't have the level of resources that a large company might have, particularly around things like ICFR, uh, internal controls over financial reporting. There may be material weaknesses, segregation of duty only being one of them. Um, and from the perspective of the external auditor, these smaller and mid-sized companies may not have the level of documentation that the auditors need to get comfortable with with um, what's going on in the company. And so it's gonna require more inquiries and they'll be you know, chatting with the, the finance team more frequently in those smaller companies. And you know, another issue that we see coming up now is this is a, uh, a seller's market. For if you're a job uh, on a job hunt, you know, lots of folks are leaving where they are now and going somewhere else. So, are you able in a smaller mid-sized company to fill the void of that person who left? Do you have the documentation on what that job actually does so that somebody could step in and do it um, without any, uh, you know, missing any uh, issues? And then, you know, another issue is disclosure controls. You know, smaller companies, are you making false or, or material and misleading disclosures concerning the impact that COVID had on your business? Um, or uh, another thing that the SEC is paying close attention to is, are you attributing certain accounting issues to COVID when they were actually, in fact, things that predated the pandemic? So are you trying to like get rid of big bath losses or something? So these are the kind of things that the auditors are going to focus on, SEC is going to focus on, and as a smaller mid-sized company, you should be asking questions about and Margo, I think you brought up a, a great um, point, and, and I'm, 
you know, if I put on my my non-financial reporting hat, thinking through um, other types of disclosures, particularly around um, organizations that are jumping into um, uh, ESG and and com- disclosures around um, compliance related activities and and some of the information that's being put out there. So um, as we as we think through disclosures, I think it's it's as important to think about financial disclosures as well as non-financial and what um, what the representations are being made, um, what information is you know data sources to me and um, how how good the data source is, um, how we how that information again we talked about integrity of numbers, but it's really you know the integrity of information that's coming through our various sources internally, and again what a small and medium sized company um, might have and and how well they can rely on their data versus um, what a large scale large sized global operations may be getting. Um, I think that's all really important, but also comes into the you know what we're what we're seeing and what we're hearing in terms of of organizations struggle um, and again I go back to um, maybe more of that um, uh, less um, less financial reporting and more of the cyber related risks that we're seeing and, and perhaps more of the vendor related activities that we're seeing more of the employee expense related items that we're seeing so again I think for, for small and medium sized companies we're seeing at least in my experience more of that more of those paper cut type frauds where it's it's um, where people can get money or, or um, information out of the system um, more easily than they could in the pre-pandemic environment, either because they had eyes on them or they didn't have the opportunity based on the controls at the time, or um, given the given actually a lot of organizations have, I know this is going to sound countermeasure, but in order to be able to accommodate um, so many people working in a remote environment, they've had to open up the, the systems and, and sort of open up the floodgates and that's created its own set of challenges. So again, um, I, I think, you know, considering operations, the, you know, keeping a financial hat on, but keeping our eyes on um, operational changes, operational challenges and what behavior that's driven has been really important in the remote work environment. Thank you so much. And I think um, the conversations that we've had thus far have been really great. And the both of you have shared a lot of insight and knowledge for all of our attendees today. And so with the interest of time, I'm going to pose one last question that I think will be a great way to wrap up our session, which is, you know, I'm getting the assumption that COVID-19 has really changed the face of fraud, not just nationally, but globally as well. And so what advice do you have for the CFOs who are with us and, you know, are listening? What can they do better and what, you know, improvements, suggestions do you have for these companies in tackling the, the new trends in fraud that have come about? Sure. I think the first thing is um, keep your keep your eyes on the ball, meaning um, you, you really do need to be thinking through and have that mindset that anything can happen. Um, I, I often find when we're doing fraud risk assessments, um, we, we see those fields of green and we have that no fraud here mindset. So I would really encourage you all to keep 
keep really your keep open minds, keep open eyes, understand the changes that are that are happening in the organization, but always think about, you know, what could that lead to? You know, very often I think we're running at a you know a thousand miles a minute and we don't necessarily stop and pause and consider if if somebody had, you know, um, bad intent, um, if something, if somebody took advantage of something rather than it being a simple mistake, what could happen? And so, again, I think I go back to my best advice being, you know, your your gut's your best fraud detection tool. Keep your keep your mindset open to the the possibility of fraud, um, and understand that things are different. As much as we like to say that we've gotten um, better at fraud detection, um, not all of the automation always captures that that people related uh, behavior. So those are those are my suggestions. Yeah, and to add on to what the Pam is saying, I think um, you know you need to revisit or refresh your fraud risk assessment, particularly with the focus on like the facts and circumstances if you're a global corporation, what's going on in the local countries that you operate in? You know, what are the challenges that those units are facing? Are there supply chain issues? Are there continued economic uncertainty in those countries versus what's happening here in the US? Are there other disruptions um, on the the issue of professional skepticism, I would say, lead by example, ask questions, particularly around assumptions and estimates. If you're doing better than your competitors before you pat yourself on the back, make sure you're doing it better for all the right reasons and not because your subsidiaries are, are giving into pressures, either ones that are self-inflicted or that come from a superior. And I say, you know, we say this in many of our uh, anti-fraud collaboration resources, make it acceptable, even encourage people to bring bad news forward, because it's when that doesn't happen that oftentimes frauds will uh, get perpetrated because nobody wants to tell the boss, hey, we didn't make uh, sales this year or this month or this quarter. Um, and the collaboration has like two resources that I think you'll find interesting. One is on skepticism and the other is on culture. So how to conduct a culture assessments, how to track your culture. Don't take it for granted, as, as Pam was saying, that you have a very honest uh, organization because it only takes one person and that person can, you know, not, their activities may not rise to your uh, attention, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And as I mentioned earlier, those companies that have a good ethical culture are less likely to have misconduct occur there, but don't take that for granted.